you know, you, you can be a bit of a martyr. You can want to change things for other people and be the good thing that's there and keeping people happy. But I really believe now that if you are aligning yourself to an organization, you're essentially advocating for them. And I think you kind of have to be careful that whatever you're putting your energy to, you can back. Hello there and welcome to Mental Health at Work, the podcast where people reveal the mental health stories that shaped how they think about work and themselves. This week, Mai is joined by Laura Skinner, Chief People Officer at Tempo, who shares what it was like fighting for company culture at a business waiting for a lawsuit to happen, and why founders should embrace hiring employees with greater knowledge than them. As always, this podcast is brought to you by Oliva proper mental health support and emotional growth for every single employee. If you want to learn more about how Oliva could support your business and your people, head to oliva.health. That's O-L-I-V-A dot health. Okay, let's get on with the show. Hi, Laura. Hi. Thank you so much for being here. How are you doing today? How are you feeling? I'm feeling great. Thank you. It's lovely to meet you as well. I'm super, super excited to talk to you today. I have the feeling that this episode will be a bit different than the rest. Perhaps you want to give us your five cents about who you are and what you do. You will say it way better than me. And then I can start shooting my questions. Okay. So if you can hear my dog walking around, he's just... um exploring the room at the moment (laughs) I so yeah I've been in HR for about 14 years now gosh that sounds like a really long time I did start in recruitment and then eventually went more generalist and I started with a string of big corporates which was really cool to see how things work at scale and to gain experience and have lots of training and so I've worked for the likes of Tesco, BT, NetWest and City Investment Bank's And then I really found a love for startups and scale-ups where you can just really feel like you can be more impactful, get your arms around the business, be closer to people and the commercial aspect of the business. I was contracting to gain a lot of experience and to see how that would be and had become a bit of a commitment phobe, but I really fell in love with Tempo's purpose and mission and it is in the people space and that's really lovely because it's great to be able to engage with an organization and really understand what they're trying to do and achieve and be more involved I suppose bring a bit more value from your individual functional backgrounds than you sometimes can do. Many people when we talk about culture is like oh that fluffy thing what is company culture for you how would you describe and how would you describe the job you do towards nourishing that culture? I'd say your culture is essentially how People would answer the question, what does it feel like to work there? It's not what you say it is. It just is what it is. And it's evolving and changing all the time. And I would see my role as nurturing that as much as possible. And especially in the startup and scale-up world, you spend a lot of time trying to understand what makes a company really unique and different, whether it's rituals or habits or 
particular values that they hold dear and thinking about how you can hold on to that and um, stay true to who you are and who you want to be as you get bigger. To some degree, there's always a little bit of transformative work because you can always make progress. But I do think to a large part, it is what it is and the history of your company and the people that you've had involved have a huge influence on that. I guess, and also based on my experience, the founders and the leadership team, the values of them says a lot about how it's reflected in the rest of the company, the foundations, the why, the mission, the vision on the company. I completely agree with you. And I often work with founders who have their very first people role. And I spend a lot of time when I'm looking at companies to partner with asking how things have been so far, how they've made decisions, what's been difficult, what I could expect. And I find that that tells me a huge amount because you're, you're picking up from there, aren't you? And you want to work in harmony as much as you possibly can with them. So yeah, I completely agree with what you just said. Did you ever had an experience? And if yes, how was it for you where you realized that you were not aligned with the company values and there you were trying to nourish a culture that wasn't the culture you thought it was going to be? Yes, I've had, I think, one particular example that comes to mind of a organization I partnered with in a contracting capacity. And if I was listening to someone saying this, I'd go straight on their LinkedIn and try and try to figure out which one that was. It's not on my CV. It's not on my LinkedIn because it wasn't... Um, <laughs> a very positive experience for my mental health or, or in my career full stop. How was for you that experience? Yeah, it's not very comfortable when you're going against the grain and everything feels like a battle and that's how it felt to me. Hmm. But to give yeah, to give some context, it was not long into my journey of contracting and I found myself not knowing what I would do next and met with an organization where there were some red flags, but I went with it anyway for financial security. What were these red flags? I think that the biggest thing that stood out was during the process of being considered for the opportunity. There was sort of a disproportionate, in my view, expectation of outlining exactly what I was going to do and the value that I would bring, almost as if I had pitched myself as someone to come in and, and play a human resources role in that organization that they weren't looking for. That wasn't the case. They had a position, but I probably had four or five meetings outlining a project plan, what I would do, how it would work, what they could expect. Not something I would do again. I was a bit more naive then, but that seemed a little bit off to me. I was very challenged. I was very put on the spot. It wasn't a comfortable environment. You saw tints of micromanagement and being challenged, not in a nice way. It felt negative. I'd struggle to put it into words, but it just felt off. And I'm someone who, who loves a debate and loves talking all things people and, and how things can work in the multiple ways. And I, I love a flexible approach according to business needs. It's something I feel quite passionately about. I'd never expect to, to do something the same way twice. So I typically love those conversations, but this felt different. How did you feel in that I don't know if it was physical or remote, but in that room, no matter if it was virtual or not, with these people that were micromanaging and challenging a lot, how, how did you feel emotionally and physically? I felt approaching intimidated. Just the body language even in the room, the, you know, 
there's a way of making yourself seem quite big and sort of almost leaning over when you're speaking to someone as opposed to it feeling like more of a comfortable equal conversation they were just things that's hard to put into words with the gestures you're doing I'm reading like it was not respecting your physical yes. space yeah signs that at the time you know if I had something else and I know people are often in this position if I had something else to go to it would have been a really easy decision it wasn't the best paying role it wasn't in the best location but it was work despite it feeling like a challenging process I still backed myself to do what I was doing because I've, I've done it before and I've done it again since it was essentially a typical stuff of coming in, doing a bit of an audit to what they needed and, and then setting up a function and agreeing a bit of a project plan. And the long term probably looked like bringing in a HR manager because they were still quite a small business. So you keep things moving and I'd move on to something new and it was all set up. And that's essentially what I did. But I found quite a lot when I was doing that audit that was quite Well, it was very, not quite, concerning on a cultural level. And there were a lot of grievances, allegations, misconduct. It was one of those things where you start pulling at a thread mm. and it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And it was some of the worst stuff I've probably come across in my career. I'd picked up on how things typically went culturally in the organization as I was going. I was a member of the leadership team. I was in meetings. I could see how people tend to work, to communicate. There was quite a lot of dominance from people running the organization and control and that sort of feeling. So I could sense that to make a case for some change. And the kind of change I was suggesting in the organization was effectively that a fair few people would leave because they had done things that were so inappropriate and treated people in ways that were so inappropriate. And it was marginalized groups as well. From a DEI and B perspective, there were segments and demographics in the organization that had received bad treatment yeah obviously I won't mention the company but it was it was sexual harassment there were at several levels men in, in leadership positions who'd made inappropriate comments made people feel very uncomfortable and at the worst examples were actual experiences of physical sexual harassment I think one thing I'm, I'm generally quite good at is creating a sense of trust and confidence where people can speak to me. And there were women in that company that shared just awful experiences with me from day one. And this is what I meant earlier when I said I was sort of scratching the surface and I found out more and more and more numerous offenses from the same people. A lot of women who found sort of solidarity with each other, who felt deeply, deeply uncomfortable at work. And it's easy to say, Why would you stick with this? Why wouldn't you go somewhere else? But people don't always feel that they have that choice. And there was a power imbalance where, you know, there were people in trusted positions of authority. So there was also that sense of everyone kind of knows this is probably happening and people act inappropriately. There was a lot of unprofessional behavior across the company in general, you know, on nights out and with drugs and, and, and stuff like that on socials. So there was that sense of, Either no one really cares, no one wants to look, and I was the first person who wanted to listen and wanted to do the job I was brought in to do properly, not even from a purely sort of moralistic standpoint, but because this was a company that we're looking to grow, we're looking to be a success, and I wouldn't have seen that as sustainable or possible if, if some of mm. these issues continued, because it just felt to me like a, a huge, almost like a lawsuit waiting to happen at some stage. 
And I was surprised that their glass door was fine, their word of mouth reputation when we were hiring people was positive. There was no indication of that. I guess their turnover was high, but other than that, you wouldn't have really known. So I'm curious, the leadership team knew about these behaviors and this climate at work, and they brought you in to change this? This was never mentioned to me in part of my journey. There was no notion of a culture needing to change. It was more help us structure things, help us be more efficient, help us have policies that we don't currently have, you know, typical stuff of a company that just didn't have time to do HR and needed to centralise it. There was no sense of that. I think there was a sense that there were people in positions of responsibility who were known for getting results as opposed to doing things in the right way and could be a bit... um I suppose, rogue or or less professional in some of their practices. You can imagine people in sales positions, for example, it was, you know, get the contract, make the money as the priority. So it was definitely, I think, a a feeling and an acceptance of that. And if they were successful, it was fine. I definitely don't think the information that I was able to obtain was commonly known, though. I recommended that we immediately spoke to our lawyers. I had a high-level plan, which involved exiting some people who were performing but I I couldn't see any other way and it went far worse than I could have ever expected it to go. There have been times in my career where I've shared things about cultures. You you hold up a mirror don't you? You form your own view and you hold up a mirror and no one likes to go looking for problems or hear bad things about an organisation. So I expected a bit of defensiveness but the steer I essentially got was to exit people who had shared grievances, shared concerns, so that there weren't people in the organisation who had a negative feeling about that company anymore and and could bring issues if they continued to talk about the things that they had spoken about. Obviously, I wasn't going to do that, so it left me in a bit of a tricky spot. I would like to rewind in order to ask you another question. You were saying that you created this safe space for these people to come and talk to you and share these experiences for with you. How did you feel listening to all these stories? Pretty devastated. We're often sponges in our roles, I think. And I'm not sure it's, it's something that people who don't work in, in this type of role often understand how you, you can be highly empathetic and it's, you know, you, you don't tend to take it home. You, you can listen, you put yourself in someone's place, you understand what they'd like to see as a change. You, you can keep a bit of distance. Um, and I did. And I was probably, in, in my own mental health, I was probably okay at that point, to be honest with you. I think the feeling of, okay, well, it's, it's great that this is now being heard and hopefully I can do some good here. And also, even though I was a contractor, I wasn't a permanent member of the team, I was completely new to the organisation, I still felt comfortable in saying this isn't okay. I think when I felt that I couldn't make the sort of change I should have been able to do, that's when it got difficult for me. It wasn't the reaction I was expecting. I was expecting outrage, and that's not what happened. So the first meeting was really emotive. The plan that I'd put together was not agreed, um, was not entertained. I took a bit of a break, spoke to some friends, spoke to my now husband but boyfriend at the time about what to to do. I'm the kind of person that always looks inward, so if I don't influence very well, if I'm not heard, I'll always think, okay, what can I do differently? What didn't land? Am I doing and saying the right thing? So I did some searching in that regard. Um, I came back and I tried again. 
that didn't work. And the reaction the second time round was more angry and negative because the steer I had been given was not the one I wanted to take. That meeting was particularly unpleasant. I then started to feel very uncomfortable. And it's yet yeah, probably one of the hardest moments of my career, in all honesty, because I had committed to what I was doing. I'd built that trust with people. I could see what job I was supposed to do and I didn't feel like I could do it. And I just felt this tremendous sense of guilt if I walked away that I had said to people, I'm here, I can, we'll make this better, it will be okay. And it wasn't going to be okay. And just walking away from that felt really rubbish. I felt like I'd failed. I put everything down in writing that I had without showing specifics, without people's permission. And I didn't want, you know, bad things to happen to people that had shared things with me, which was a real possibility in that particular environment. I essentially said that my position was to work through it in an appropriate way and with their lawyers, or I was going to leave the organisation and expected my contract to be sort of paid out and settled. And I, and that was it. It was a, a role where I was working in the office environment every day. Um, so when I sent that email, I was invited into the office to talk about it. It was a very short conversation of, is this it? It's your way or nothing. And, and I said, well, in terms of what I've put in that email, yes, pretty much. And then the CEO of business stood up and really towered over me, got very, very close to me. I left. And I had a follow-up in writing from the closest thing to a finance and legal person in their organisation you could get without sharing specifics. It was someone in that type of a role who essentially said they didn't agree with my observations, what I was suggesting to do, and it was fine. We'd part ways and they'd pay off the contract. And I didn't have anything else to do. I didn't have a role. I think that night I was a bit numb and upset and... I wasn't expecting it at the time. I think I was kind of living day to day, but I had what I'd probably describe as PTSD after that. I couldn't go back near the office and just thinking about it would make me feel really anxious and upset. I didn't sleep well for weeks. There's just something about that last meeting that felt, I don't know what I thought was going to happen, but I really didn't feel safe. I've never experienced that in a work environment ever. I couldn't get out of there fast enough. I I basically ran out of the office. And I can still see your emotion when you talk. It was shocking. I think my interpretation of it was that words weren't working and I'm quite a strong woman. I'm quite confident. It doesn't take that much to knock me. I wasn't, my voice wasn't wavering. I wasn't nervous. I felt like because that sort of intimidation tactic hadn't quite worked with me, it became quite physical. And that's when I left. That's Mm. when it just, yeah, I can feel like an equal with someone, but if you're a six foot three tall man standing over me I'm not not the biggest woman in the world I'm gonna move away I'm going to leave how did you feel that fear in your body physically textbook fight or flight response didn't know what was about to happen I just wanted to get out of there it was just all very emotional and weird I just thought people are gonna wonder what's going on why am I literally running out of this business didn't say goodbye to anyone I just grabbed my bag and left So how did you feel about your self-confidence? I think it felt less like a confidence knock. I I don't know if there was much I could have done differently from, from a professional standpoint to have changed things. And this is, you know, part of my big learning is a lot of the time you and I are in roles where you're trying to make a culture as great as it can be and play a role and do good. And a lot of 
cultural stuff feels like it kind of flows through you, right? I definitely don't believe, especially not now, that you can single-handedly, you know, you have to be one of many ingredients that are right for a company to have a great and fantastic culture that's inclusive and healthy and has people feel comfortable. So it was less of a confidence thing. I think more, I was just really concerned for the people that I had left. It was more that than anything else. I felt a big sense of obligation. But then again, over time, I think I probably see it differently. I think you, and it's probably something people experience a lot where they're facing challenges at work or things aren't quite right or they're in a bad environment. You know, you, you can be a bit of a martyr. You can want to change things for other people and be the good thing that's there and keeping people happy. But I really believe now that if you are aligning yourself to an organization, you're essentially advocating for them. And I think you kind of have to be careful that whatever you're putting your energy to, you can back. I guess this experience, it taught you a lot. And now you learn how to prevent this from happening again. And that's one of the ways is really doing a good assessment of the company, of the people, of the values, and making sure that you're fully aligned so you can work towards the same direction. All of that and just being realistic about what you can and can't do and setting boundaries for yourself. Tell me a little bit more what you're doing now in a company that you do feel aligned, that you feel that you can have the impact that you want to have. Oh gosh, happier topic. Really good. Yeah, it's been, how long have I been with Tempo now? Two years. Um, so initially it was setting up the function, having a handover from Ben and Ollie, who I work with really closely. And yeah, really carving out how things can work, applying all of my past experience. And, and yeah, I think a, a big difference is that sense of trust and empowerment and feeling enabled with generous, positive, constant support, not just from them, but from everyone in the company. Couldn't be further away in terms of the inclusivity. They've always had a very diverse team, but it's always been very inclusive as well. Yeah, one hallmark of the culture is being incredibly human. So you really feel that you can bring your full self to work, see others for who they really authentically are. You know, there's a little bit of that layer of professionalism. Of course, we're not in a pub, we're in an office, but um, you really feel that you can see people and be seen and that's really nice. What are for you the key ingredients to foster a culture of empowerment, trust and psychological safety environment let's say one thing that has made a really instrumental difference is that both co-founders from day one had a mindset of as they built up the team surrounding themselves with people that knew more than they did because they have excellent humility and they know that they're not an expert in everything so as they look for a people person an fd they want to be sure they can establish that trust through a hiring process and, you know, really make someone comfortable to share their strengths and their weaknesses and what they've done that worked in the past and what hasn't worked in the past and where they might need support. And they've built a leadership team. Their leadership team have also then hired people. And it's with that same drive to find people that you can give 
big jobs too. I'm not saying that's easy to do, but I think that's been very powerful as well as defining the values early on and, and taking a fairly zero tolerance approach to making sure they are really felt in everything you do from, you know, hiring to performance, career development, promotion, you know, recognizing where people are doing a very good job of that. Startups, I think one thing you can find really frequently is you're trying to grow so fast and recruitment can be a constant challenge, especially in, in more niche jobs. And sometimes you find yourself in that position where you feel that you need to make a compromise somewhere to have the right people in the right place at the right time. How about you? What do you think? I completely agree with you in what you're saying. I think the baseline of the leadership and the why on, on how the business was built. I think what I would add is two key ingredients would be support to leaders in how to lead. I think many people are given the role of leadership without having led a team in the past and they do it the best they can with the tools they have. But sometimes that is not enough or is misaligned between different ways of doing. So I think it's very important to be aligned and support leaders on how to lead people through empowerment, motivation. And I think the second ingredient, I would say, how to support mental health at work is also a key ingredient. We all want to bring our whole self to work and that sometimes means bringing our worries to work. It unlocks another level of work when you allow these things to unfold and to understand if you provide mental health support you're unlocking many many other areas that will directly impact at work to build on that one common thread that i found is that you really need to make people people managers who have the motivation to do it as well so you know rather than people who have performed very well and are looking for progression And to feel that sort of upwards movement, to do everything you just said and to do a great job of it, you have to want to. And not everyone wants to, and that's completely fine. There's been stages in my career where I've just wanted to get on with it and do my job and be very personally effective because being a people manager is exhausting and it's um, something you're always learning. It can be very draining it's a massive time commitment so you also kind of need a role that gives you the time to do it well right especially if you've got a big team nailed it there where you need to have space for people growing in both directions into a more ac specialist role but also different than leading and making this too available for everyone so they are not trapped into I have to go to leading people in order to progress professionally. I think that's, yes, I fully agree with you. And when people talk about micromanagement or the sort of negative examples of the experience of being managed by someone you hear a lot of unclear direction and they come in and fix things and they don't give feedback and they don't coach. I think a lot of the time it's because the managers feel that they're too busy or they feel compelled to do other things. It's not always their fault. How do you make sure that people have the tools to navigate mental health conversations at work? We keep it on the agenda. I think that in itself is a big thing. In small and growing organizations, it can be difficult to keep things like that a priority. The same goes for areas like DEI and B. You know, in a small company, you don't necessarily hire a mental health expert or leader or a DEI and B champion. You're relying on it being 
supported and nourished within your culture because people dedicate the time to it because they'll feel some sort of compelling reason or need to to do so. so if that stuff really matters to you but you have to carve out the time and have goals and have a bit of a plan and, and we do and have investment for it as well and try and safeguard it not investment when times are great and you've got a bit of spare cash it was mental health awareness week and it would look great if we did something but you know steady commitment with longevity and, and a bit of a statement you make so that's one thing we do from a capability standpoint we did the mental health first aid training and mm-hmm. we had it's somewhere between 20 and 25 percent of the workforce complete that and at all levels um, and one of the founders did it himself he wanted to get better in that space I love that he directly participated and alongside other people and as an employee not as a a leader but you know in with the other team members in that scenario what piece of advice could you give to leaders that want to know more about their current culture so how to assess their current culture and what small steps they could give in order to improve that it's nice to to frequently come together and, and talk about the experience of working in your company and you can do that through many lens so we recently did a bit of a values refresh and combined it with a workshop on our purpose and mission to see how people felt in their connectedness to that and understanding of that and to update it because things change all the time it, so we ran multiple sessions and got people together It wasn't a massive time commitment. It wasn't massively structured, but the feedback was great. We made it clear that it would be a safe place to speak and we wanted everyone to participate. If you don't do that kind of stuff regularly, then you become increasingly detached from the perception of others, right? Additionally, the standard stuff around exit meetings where people feel that they can be really, truly honest. I like to do them even if I feel like I already know it all. I know the whole story of why someone's leaving. I still like to say, what don't I know? In case there's anything. And one thing we do as well is just have quite frequent FaceTime and, and check-ins to see how people are doing. And I try and get a balance across teams and levels. I think that's one massive benefit of having someone in a people generalist role because you can get the objective truth and the reality. As we scale, we're looking at whether we can use pulse surveys and, and, and what approaches we can use. We do engagement surveys twice a year. I think over time we'd want something more frequent. And I think the key to succeeding with that kind of thing is to share the results you get very, very transparently and have some sort of a plan and tell people what you're going to do so they don't just feel that it's an insight-gathering exercise because that's when over time people just... I've seen it happen time and time and time again. People just stop participating, stop showing the feedback and go from being actively engaged or disengaged to passively engaged or disengaged. And when you get to the latter place, you kind of lost a bit of a battle to make any change there. I guess an extreme example of this is exactly the experience you went through where mm. they were finding out things that they were not willing to act on and that made people like you just leave. You know, one thing I love doing is the in the stay interviews instead of exit interviews. Mm-hmm. I like asking if we were to finish this work relationship in six months, what do you think the main reason would be? I love that because, yeah, you have the opportunity to make change at the right time, don't you? When 
you can actually affect something. I might steal that from you. Yes, please. <laughs> I love that. It's such a bold question as well. I think a lot of the time, and one thing I'd really try and coach managers to do more of is just get uncomfortable. And you might not like the answer. It feels quite awkward, but better to speak about it than not. I think sometimes people almost feel that if you ask a question like that, whatever they say will then become a reality, which is just utter nonsense, isn't it? What is your next goal in order to nourish this amazing culture that you're talking about at Tempo? We have of late been in a real growth phase with lots of new people. Given my background and given I've worked in larger places previously, everything I'd sort of set up from things like how we manage career conversations to manager training to so on and so forth had been designed with scale in mind. And now I'm in a bit of a place of checking my homework, having someone else check my homework, gathering feedback, making some observations, and then looking at sort of building again from there. I really like an iterative approach with lots of feedback. So that's what this feels like. And also checking that the hiring process is, is still working. And I think it is. I think we've hired some really great people, but We just want to keep talking about that and we get good insight from things like career conversations and performance conversations that we always want to channel back into the hiring process. I would say that's the plan. I have until Christmas, so four months left before I take some time off to have a baby. So I'm going to do as much of that as possible. And then, yeah, take a break for the first time in my life, which is very strange. <laughs> that's coming. How do you feel about being pregnant, working, and the idea of not working for a long time when you haven't done it in the past. Yeah, I should take back what I said, actually, because you're a mother and it's obviously not taking a break. It's not going to feel like a break. <laughs> It will definitely be a break from work. I'm curious and I've got an open mindset and I'm going to go day by day. And my husband is wonderful and we're both sort of experiencing things together. That's what I'd say. I think I'm struggling with trying to imagine who I will be with a child, what I will want out of work and the role that will play in my life. And to some degree, you have to plan for some of that, don't you? So I'm, I'm thinking about nurseries and how much time a child will have in nursery. I have absolutely no idea. I, <laughs> the answer would be, well, I'll, I'll know once, once my baby's here. So yeah, it's a bit of a minefield. Thank you so much for sharing your story. I know it wasn't an easy one. So thank you so much for doing the effort and going beyond and digging into the details. I'm sure that many of our listeners will really appreciate that. Thank you very much. It was my pleasure. And I hope, I hope, it, I hope my ramblings are useful in some way. I think a lot of people find themselves in similar situations where you're expected to be a force for change and you put a lot on yourself and you feel this empathy and it can be really difficult so I hope it's useful in some way. This podcast was hosted by Maite Otero, produced by Billy Cragen and brought to you by Oliva. Proper mental health support and emotional growth for every single employee. Thanks to Laura for sharing her story and for showing us just how transformative company culture can be when it comes to employee well-being. If you're a fan of the podcast, you can like or subscribe to Mental Health at Work in all the usual places. 
And if you really want to help us beat the podcast search engine algorithms, you can also leave us a review on Apple or Spotify, preferably a positive one. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.